Well, good morning, Creekwood. Man, we have a packed house this morning. Uh, Brad just told us we broke a record for Christmas, 3,900 in attendance. I think all 3,900 of you showed up today in this service. Uh, Man, packed overflow. Shout out to the overflow, everybody on the patio. Man, we're so glad that you're with us. Hey, I just want to mention to you, we just sang a song about making room. We got room in the 830 service, y'all, okay? Um, So if you want to move, uh, we would love for you guys to jump over there. Um, just a friendly reminder. Man, I'm excited that we're here together this morning, starting our, our year right, 2023. Can you believe it's 2023? Crazy. Um, and this morning, I'm excited because we're starting our 21 Days of Prayer and Fasting series, a series that we do every year at Creekwood where we start this way. And if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be hanging out there today. And today, I want to talk to you about one of the most frustrating one of the most misunderstood and one of the most controversial subjects in all of Christianity. Today, I want to talk to you about prayer. Now, I know some of you may be sitting here going, well, what's the big deal about prayer? Prayer is pretty straightforward. It's pretty simple. Some of you have grown up around prayer. And so for you, prayer is not a problem, but there are probably some of you in here, and and I would assume that there's a lot of you in here, that prayer has become a subject that is tense for you. That maybe you're a little frustrated with prayer, that maybe you're a little confused, and maybe you've even thrown in the towel and decided that maybe prayer is just not for you. So this morning, um, I would love to talk to you about prayer. Now, I, I grew up in church, and I don't know if you grew up in church or if you've noticed that church culture's changed a little bit over the years. Have you noticed that? You guys remember like going to church uh, getting suited up. Y'all remember that? Like you got your suit on, you guys are ready to go, your pinstripe suit, right? You know, really nice. Y'all remember Sunday school? Anybody remember Sunday school? Shout out to Sunday school and, you know, graham crackers and all that fun stuff. Um, and I grew up Pentecostal. So we had growing up these things called prayer meetings. Y'all ever been to a prayer meeting? Anybody? Okay. Now prayer meetings were interesting. Because you would go and, and you'd walk into this room and they weren't like checking your qualifications as you walked in. There was nobody at the front door going, hey, excuse me, sir, can I see your prayer card that you've passed the prayer class? Like nobody did that and you just walked in this room. And I remember as a young boy, like seven years old, going to these prayer meetings and I would be in this room with people who knew how to pray. I didn't know how to pray. But man, they were just praying and seeking God. And I was like, this is different. And it was interesting because as a young child, I was, I was exposed to that. I was around that. And so I just kind of caught prayer. You know what I mean? You ever just caught something? Hopefully you didn't catch anything over Christmas break. Hopefully you're good, but you know what I mean? Like some of you have realized that you parent the way that your parents parent because you kind of just caught that. And for some of us in here, we grew up that way, but I don't know if you noticed, like church culture's changed a little bit. Prayer's become a lot more corporate and we expect, you know, now the believer to be praying on their own, which I think is biblical. However, it leaves a lot of questions unanswered. You know, some of us in here, we've been told to pray, but we've never been taught to pray. And so we wonder things like, okay, well, why do we pray? And when do we pray? And then... What words do we use when we pray? And like, 
How long should it be? And there's so many questions that we have that are unanswered. And maybe some of you in here, you gave prayer a good shot. You were trying to be consistent in prayer. Maybe even this year, your goal is to be consistent in prayer, but you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed and you found yourself frustrated, confused, and possibly even angry because God doesn't seem to hear you. No matter how good you are, no matter how many days or how, much, how many hours you've served, no matter how many offerings you've given, you just can't seem to get God's attention. For some of you, you've decided to even throw in the towel. Prayer is not for you. Now, we know that prayer is fundamental. It's essential for every believer. But this morning, the question I really want to answer is why pray? Why pray? One day while Jesus was praying, his inner circle of disciples were watching and they were listening. In fact, we have this recorded in Luke chapter 11. One finally musters up the courage to ask Jesus what they had been wanting to ask him. And here's what it says. It says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, would you teach us to pray? It's a great question. And at face value, you look at that and you go, yeah, that seems like a question that should be in the Bible. However, what's funny about this is the context. These were Jewish disciples. These Jewish boys had grown up in a tradition of prayer. They were devout. And so they were asking Jesus because they observed him praying in a way that they were not accustomed to. That clearly whatever Jesus was doing and the way that he was praying was so different, it intrigued the disciples and they looked at Jesus and went, hey Jesus, you don't pray like us. Would you teach us to pray? Now what Jesus would say next would not be anything new to them. In the Jewish tradition, um, the Old Testament writings, you had the old Jewish writings like the Talmud and the Midrash, these would have sound doctrinal teachings of prayer. So the doctrine wasn't the problem. In fact, these Jewish boys would have grown up with their fathers teaching them to pray. They would be reciting prayers from the Psalms. They would even pray and recite prayers daily, sometimes even up to three times a day. In our modern world today, we would look back at this ancient, ancient Christians and we would say these people were by no means absent of prayer. In fact, they were experts in prayer. Yet, they still asked the question, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? Why? Why would they even ask that? With all their upbringing, with all their understanding, with all of their prayers that they prayed, why would they even ask the question? Because after observing Jesus, they had concluded that maybe, just maybe, they had been doing it wrong. Now, I would imagine that this is not something that you've asked someone to do, right? I mean, can you imagine like sitting down with someone and after you sat down with them and you prayed, they suggested that you go somewhere and learn how to pray, right? Like, like you would be offended, you know? Like, hey, you know that prayer you prayed the other night before dinner? Yeah, that was wrong, you know? Like, <laughs> let me teach you to pray. Like, that's offensive, right? And to that point, today as we look at the words of Jesus, I'm gonna tell you something about prayer that possibly may be offensive, that maybe even you've been doing it wrong. But that's good news. That's good news because if we're honest, 
Most of our prayers don't get answered anyways, right? Unless they're the prayers that were going to be answered anyways. You know, like, Lord, would you please help me find my keys? And they just so happen to be in the place that you left them, you know? Like, oh, thank you, Jesus, you know? Um, Or Lord, would you help me find a parking spot in the middle of rush hour Christmas season at Target? And you find that spot, but so did everybody else around you that didn't pray that prayer. Or Lord, would you please help the Cowboys win? And they win the games they're supposed to, but they lose the games they're not supposed to lose. So what's up with that? I'm not talking about those kind of prayers. I'm I'm talking about those miracle kind of prayers. You know, the ones that if God doesn't do something, nothing's going to happen. Because with those kind of prayers, occasionally we get a yes, but most of the time, in fact, oftentimes, well, we get nothing. And perhaps it was a series of nothings that has convinced you that there's nothing to prayer. That this doesn't work, that, well, I'm not even sure why I pray anyway. Well, you're right. That kind of prayer does not work. The kind of prayers that we pray most of the time, they don't work, and at least they don't work the way that we want them to work. Yet, Jesus prayed, and he taught his disciples and his followers to pray. And so this morning, as we look at the words of Jesus, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? Back to our story. So Jesus is hanging out with his first century disciples, these Jewish boys who had grown up around prayer. They'd grown up around the tradition of prayer, good teaching around prayer, yet they would look at Jesus and they realized that they were doing something very wrong, that they were, it was different than the way that he prayed, that there was this different connection going on between him and God that they weren't accustomed to. And spoiler alert, there was. However, the way that Jesus prayed was more intimate. It was less scripted. It was, there was more passion and more intensity to Jesus's prayers. It made them so discontent with their own prayers that they would be forced to ask the question, Lord, would you teach us to pray? So Jesus obliges, of course. You wanna know how to pray? And then Jesus does something in typical Jesus fashion. Instead of answering their question and telling them how to pray, Jesus first starts with how not to pray. I love this. Now, now, if you're here and you're not religious or you're not a fan of Christians and Christianity, um, the way that Jesus answers this, you're gonna love. In fact, I would say this is one of the many reasons that you should consider becoming a follower of Jesus because Jesus points out the hypocrisy that so many people do when they wrongfully enter into prayer. Here's what he says. He says, and when you pray, Matthew chapter six, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. But truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Now I love this about Jesus. He had no tolerance for pretenders, no tolerance for pretension. He had zero tolerance for people who thought they were better than other people. You know why? Because Jesus can see our heart. He could see their heart and he could see that they were not any better than those around him. In fact, they were worse because they were hiding. They were hiding behind their position. They were hiding behind their pretension. In other words, 
Their prayer, although they were praying to God, God would not reward them. Isn't that interesting? It's because God is not moved or impressed with the perfect scripted public prayer of inauthentic people. And instead, these people were looking for attention and they got it from the people that were watching, but they would fail to get their attention of the God they were praying to. Instead, their reward would be from the people who saw them pray and were impressed by their prayers. Wow, that guy's holy. Wow, that guy uses holy words. It's ineffective. So Jesus would continue. He says, but when you pray, which raises several questions, when do you pray? Why do you pray? And where do you pray? See, these were the questions that I think Jesus was interested in. And I think these questions, the disciples understood that their answers to would be very different than the answers that Jesus himself would give. And it turned out that God had not just not answered their prayers, but these disciples, man, their parents' prayers weren't even answered. They were just like you and I. They had prayed and they had gotten no response. In fact, the nation of Israel was living in the shadow of Rome. They were aware of their tragic history. In fact, many of you may not know this, but at one point in Jerusalem, all right, these Jewish leaders were having such internal conflict, they couldn't decide that they would actually invite Rome in. And Rome would come in and help them solve their internal conflict. But when Rome came in, Rome never left. And now this nation, this chosen nation by God would be oppressed and they would be under the Roman empire. But before the Romans, they would be under the Greeks. And before the Greeks, they would be under the Assyrians. And before the Assyrians, it would be the Babylonians. And so if prayer worked, this devout nation that God had chosen and promised to deliver, if prayer worked, then the prayers that they were praying, this devout, prayerful nation, Clearly, the prayers that they were praying were wrong because God didn't answer their prayers. So maybe they were right. Maybe they weren't doing it the right way. Now, the religious leaders, these Jewish religious leaders had a different idea. They had a different explanation to them. They would tell the nation of Israel, they would tell these these Jewish um, devout Christians, that they would actually be the reason why God isn't answering their prayers because they are not obedient enough. Because they weren't obedient enough, these Jewish leaders would try to solve the problem by adding to their oral written law what we would know of as the tradition of elders. It was a book that Jewish leaders would write down hundreds of Jewish laws in an effort to keep people pure and holy because they were the reason that God wasn't answering their prayers. And perhaps somebody has convinced you the same thing. Maybe somebody has twisted the word and made you feel that way, that, it's, that you need more faith and less sin, more faith and less sin, that's what's wrong. And before long, in your case, God was reduced to just an instant cash machine. Or you're scrambling to find the right pin number to get from God what you want from him. But at the same time, isn't it true that as you look around, there are people around you who are not praying and they seem to be doing just fine. 
seems to be working out for them. And so my question is, then why pray? Why pray? So back to Jesus. Verse five, Jesus says this, but when you pray, I want you to go into your room. Now, if I were to suggest to you that you couldn't pray um, when you're driving to work, uh, when you're walking the dog or sitting on the bus, you may respond with, who are you? to tell me when to pray and when not to pray. Or maybe because of the religious tradition that you grew up in, you would tell me, hey, Matt, I'm really only comfortable praying when I'm in church. Now, as we look at the Bible, I want to encourage you to not hear these words from my mouth, but actually remember, these are the words coming from Jesus's lips because what he's about to tell us is very, very important. Something that I think like us, his first century audience may have missed. Here's what he says. He says, when you pray, I want you to go into your room and I want you to shut the door. Close the door? Why? You mean I, I, can't, I can't do it in my car? I can't, I can't do it while I'm on the bus, not in church, not even, why is this even necessary? I thought we could pray wherever we wanted, whenever we wanted. But later on, he tells us why. Later on, he's going to get to why he tells us that we need to have a, find a proper place and time to isolate ourselves. So, let me ask you this. When do you pray? And where do you pray? Because Jesus says it's important. More on that later, but he then says this. I want you to shut the door, and then I want you to pray to your father who is in secret. Now, I would really love Jesus to be here to elaborate on this, um, but I think his words are extraordinarily clear here. So stick with me. Jesus here instructs us to pray to God, our unseen father. Okay, let me say that again. Jesus instructs us to pray to God, not to him, not to his mama, not to the Cowboys, not even Jerry Jones, like Louis suggested at Christmas, okay? <laughs> Jesus instructs us to direct our prayers to God, but he's even more specific than that. Jesus instructed us to address our unseen God in relational terms. I want you to pray to your Father who's unseen, your Heavenly Father. Again, maybe it was his casual conversational approach to prayer that had caught the attention of these first century Jewish boys. Gentlemen, he was saying, look, I, 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 want you, I want you to find a place where you can have a private conversation with your heavenly father. I want you to close the door. I, I want you to be able to use whatever tone you find necessary and the words that you find appropriate because I want you to be able to pour out your heart without any fear of someone else seeing, hearing, anything that may hold you back from being authentic in this moment. It's different. That's a different way to pray. And he says, and your father who's done, who sees what is done in secret. You see that? God sees you. He says, your father who's done in secret will reward you. There's that word again, Reward. Now, remember what the reward was for the religious leaders earlier. Their reward was that they were seen in public because they were praying publicly. But what is the reward of those who pray in secret? What's our reward? It's better. 
Our reward is that we are seen by our Father in heaven. Church, let me ask you this. What, what if that's true? What if God sees you when you pray? What if you knew with certainty that God saw and he heard your prayers? What would you pray if you knew with absolute certainty that your heavenly father heard your prayers? Because that's what Jesus says. Then Jesus gives us another not to, but instead of continuing with the religious leaders of the day, he would turn his attention to the Roman priests, these pagan priests. He says this in verse seven, and when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. In other words, don't say the same thing over and over again. Repetition does not move God. Length or style doesn't move God. He's not looking for the right word or even the right words. In fact, on another occasion, Jesus would actually use a parable to teach and emphasize this point. He speaks of this, and he, again, he's addressing these professional prayers we heard about earlier. But he sets the scene with this Pharisee and this tax collector who go to the temple and pray. What's interesting is that this, this Pharisee, this religious leader, this guy who has grown up in church, he knows the lingo, he knows how to pray, he knows the Jewish law. Man, this guy's been instructed. He probably follows the law to the letter. His prayer, the Bible says, was eloquent. He used all the right words, the impressive words, you know, the words where you're like, That's, God's got to hear that one. Like, wow. Like, whoo, he went to seminary. That was amazing, you know? But the Bible says that his prayer was all about him. In fact, his prayer, he would be reminding God of how good he was. And then we get to the tax collector and the tax collector's prayer would be different. What's interesting is that Jesus would even include a tax collector because most of the audience that Jesus would be speaking to would assume that God wouldn't even hear this tax collector, that he wasn't good enough because of his unholiness and disobedience that God wouldn't even hear him. Yet when we see in our Bible in Luke chapter 18, this is what says, it says, but when the tax collector who was standing far off, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but instead he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful on me, a sinner. No big words, no drawn out monologue. There was nothing impressive about this prayer. Yet in this instance, Jesus would give the thumbs up to this tax collector. Here's what he's saying. This is what I'm talking about. Really? Be merciful on me, a sinner? Is that even a prayer? Look, this is, this is good news because if you hesitate to pray because you don't know what to say, this should be comforting. Look, what you say when you pray is far less consequential than if you pray. So, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? Back to Jesus, Matthew 6, 7, it says, and when you pray, I don't want you to heap up these phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. They were people who equated length with merit, and they were wrong. But do not be like them. Now, Jesus is about to say something really interesting. In fact, what Jesus would say next explains why we don't need a lot of words or even the correct words. What Jesus is fixing to say, in fact, is fixing to pull the rug underneath from a lot of us in here 
on why we even pray to begin with. And I think he did this on purpose. He said, the reason that you don't need to go on and on and on and on is because of this. Because your father knows what you need before you even ask him. Now, this is where some of the biggest controversy and questions about prayer come from right here. This is it. Because we have a misunderstanding of the sovereign nature of God. We think because God is sovereign and that he knows all, well, then why pray? If he already knows, why tell him? If God already knows, why am I wasting my breath? And I think this is the exact question that Jesus wanted them to ask. And this is what made Jesus' prayers different. It's why the disciples wanted to be taught because he prayed so differently. But we shouldn't be surprised that God already knows, right? I mean, if God is God, if he is omnipotent, then he should know. I mean, if we have to inform God, is he really God? Which is exactly what brings us to the tension that I think Jesus wanted us to address in the first place. Man, he was so brilliant to start and to stall with what not to do first. And then he puts us right in front of the very thing that a lot of us question about prayer, right? Why pray? God, if you already know, why pray? Because here's the truth about many of us. We've reduced prayer to informing God about our needs. God, this is what I need. Here's what I want. Here's what my wishes, or maybe here's the wishes and wants and needs of the people I care about most, or, but mostly it's ours. But if God already knows, why tell him? And if God already knows, why do we need to inform him? And the greatest question, if God already knows, then why pray? Why pray? Because Jesus prayed. And he would encourage his followers to pray. So my question is, what are we missing? What are we missing? It's at this point in the discussion that the disciples would step back and realize that clearly what they had been doing for prayer was not right. In fact, their motivation behind prayer, the way that they started prayer wasn't right. The reason they were praying wasn't even right. He certainly had their attention. Maybe we've been doing it wrong. Maybe this is why you've quit praying at all. And if you're still offended by the suggestion that perhaps you don't pray correctly, let me tell you that in this story, Jesus is pretty much telling everybody that they were doing it wrong. So, there they were listening and watching as Jesus deconstructed their paradigm of prayer and put them directly in front of the tension he wanted to address in the first place. And as they leaned in, he began to teach them how to pray. Verse nine, this is what he says. So then pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Pay attention right here. I realize I'm fixing to ruffle some feathers, but stay with me here. Jesus says to pray to our Father, okay? Not dear Jesus. I know, hang on. He says our Father, our heavenly Father, our perfect heavenly Father. Jesus is saying the best way to approach God is to approach him as a perfect Father, not a judge, not a ruler, not some omnipotent being. It's much more relational than that. He's our Father. 
Now I realize for some of you in here, the, the, the imagery of a father is not a problem. You, you have a great father or you are a good father. And so to think of God as a father is easy for you. But I do realize that for some of you in this room, you didn't grow up with a great father. So the imagery is God, the father for you brings up scars. And here's what I would tell you, that your heavenly father can handle that tension. And my advice to you would be to bring that with you when you pray. God, I, man, I didn't have a good father. Start there. Because if Jesus is correct, and I think he is, to, man, call God with any other image or to use any other concept may mean that you miss something. Our father in heaven. And then he says, hallowed be your name. Now here's the part in the prayer we love to skip. But this is where Jesus encourages us to pause, to acknowledge who it is that we're addressing. Hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. This is a great God who we are praying to, who has no equal, who has no rival. And by the way, this great God that we are praying to has invited you to address him as Father. This is how we should pray. We should pause right here. We don't, but we should. Listen, true prayer centers on God's glory, not on man's needs. I love this quote from an old saying. It says this, true prayer brings the mind to the immediate contemplation of God's character and it holds it there until the believer's soul is properly impressed. God, how could you, how would you do that for me, a sinner? God, you're so gracious. Look, this, this is difficult to do. And let's be honest, this is difficult to do in traffic, right? That's hard to do there. Like if you're properly impressed in traffic, you're probably a, a hazard on the road, you know? Like, <laughs> please pull over. But this is why Jesus tells us we've got to get alone and we've got to put in some quiet time and create a space to appreciate what's taking place, that we're not supposed to just say our prayers, but we're supposed to pause to contemplate what we're saying and who we're saying it to. It's different. Because when we pause to reflect on who God is, we gain a better understanding, not just of who we are, but why we are here. Look, this is the place in prayer where we recenter. This is the place where you'll hear a lot of pastors talk about this is where we align ourselves with God because this is where we gain our bearings. This puts the broader sense of life into its proper context. Our little lives that are only made significant, not because of what we accomplish or how long we live, but because of whose image we bear and whose children we are. It's a different way of praying and it caught the disciples' attention. And listen, if you skip over this part, you'll be tempted to skip over and rush by what follows. In fact, you'll just resist what follows and what follows is why we pray. What follows is the purpose of prayer. It explains why you need a place and a time, why you need to close the door or walk outside or get away from these everyday life distractions and responsibility that have convinced you that this is all there is and we are all that matters. 
If you don't pause to reflect and take time to have a sense of awe for your soul to be properly impressed, prayer will just become a reflex for you. It's just to have a good day as you walk out the door. If you don't begin by experiencing some sense of awe, our Father in heaven, creator of all things, great is your name. If you skip that, what, what he says next will be lost on you. It's why what follows rarely shows up in our prayers. And it's why I think our prayers so often are predictable and so ineffective. Because most of us pray like this, dear heavenly father, thank you for this day, here's my list, gotta go, check in with you later, right? That's, that's how most of the time it goes. But what if we're wrong? What if, what if we're missing it? Back to Jesus. Jesus says, I want you to pray like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then he says this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Wait, your kingdom? God, like your kingdom, not, not my kingdom? But God, what about my job or my lack of job? Like God, what about my health? What about my bills? God, what about my son? He won't even talk to me anymore. God, what about me? To which Jesus, I think, would smile and say, man, I already covered that. Remember, your father who sees you already knows what you need before you even ask him. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I already forgot that part. So I don't need to start with that? And Jesus would say, no. Look, when you pause to acknowledge who it is that you're addressing, when you pause to properly put into perspective who it is that you're talking to, what other thing is there to say other than God, you first. Your agenda, your will, your kingdom, mine can wait. God, you first. What else is there to say? Look, man, this is what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, seek first the kingdom of heaven. His point there is the point of prayer. The point and the purpose of prayer is to align ourselves with God's will. The purpose of prayer is to surrender our will, not to impose it. So when we pray, it's Heavenly Father, before I ask anything, I want you to know that what I want, as hard as it may be, as difficult as it may be to get here, God, what I want is what you want. Your will be done. Look, church, prayer is not about moving God, but being moved by God. It's not about getting God to do our bidding, but to get him to get us to a place where we're willing to do his. Look, this is the very thing that Jesus himself wrestled with in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he's crucified. Do you remember that? The Bible tells us that Jesus would pray all night. What's interesting is that we have multiple times in the, in the New Testament recordings of Jesus praying and he would pray quick, he would pray to the point, he would get in, he would get out, it, that was it. But this night was different. This night he spent hours, all night it says, where he was praying and he prayed so intensely that drops of blood would drop from his sweat. Why? Because Jesus was struggling with this right here. He could not surrender. He didn't agree with the will of the Father. Do you remember the prayer he prayed? Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But what does he say? 
Luke 22, he says this, nevertheless, God, I want you to know, even though it's taken me all night to get here, not my will, but your will be done. Look, and here's something interesting. You know what hung in the balance of Jesus's willingness to surrender his will to the Father? More to the point, do you know who hung in the balance? You did. I did. The world did. Hmm. Jesus, in this moment with his disciples, is not just inviting them to pray like he prayed, but to live like he lived. To submit to the will of the heavenly Father. And to be blunt, according to Jesus, if you pray with any other posture than the posture of submitting to the will of your Father, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. That's why you see people when they pray that they'll actually get on their knees and they'll pray. And we don't like to do that, right? Because we're Americans. We don't bow to anybody, right? Yet Jesus, even facing death, would bow the knee to the will of the Father. That's why we bow. That's why we submit our will. Because we recognize that God, you're worthy. God, you're holy. God, you are mighty. God, your will over mine, even when it conflicts with ours. And isn't it true that we usually skip this part? And look, I'm like you. I get this. I've got my own little kingdom. Okay, I've got my own will that I want to, you know, go after for my life. But Jesus assures us that our heavenly father knows about our fragile little kingdoms. So we don't have to start there. In fact, we shouldn't. Instead, heavenly father, your will, not mine. Your kingdom, a kingdom fueled by a new command. Your kingdom come. God, I want what you, what you want. Your will be done on this earth. And here's the point. Until we get there, until to the best of our knowledge, we can surrender our wills, aren't we just users, consumers? Doesn't that just reduce God to some cosmic vending machine or an app? I mean, consider this. If you quit praying because God didn't answer your prayers, as legitimate as they may be, maybe the healing of a parent or a friend, if you quit praying because God didn't answer your prayer and then you gave up on God altogether, what does that say about your view of God? You assume unanswered prayers said something about God. However, it really says something about your view of God. Because if there is a God, well, God should answer my prayer and God didn't answer my prayer. And so I had this very legitimate prayer. So clearly God doesn't answer prayer. God doesn't care. And I'm not even sure that God's even there. And listen, that's understandable. It's understandable if God is simply a favor distributor. If he's just a divine healer waiting to be summoned. But what if Jesus was correct? What if your heavenly father is more than that? What if he's none of that? What if his plan includes you, but it's bigger than you? What if it includes you, but it doesn't center around you? What if prayer doesn't begin with asking, 
But instead, prayer begins with recognizing and submitting. What if this year we begin with recognizing who God is and who we aren't so that we'll take, so that his will will take precedent over ours? See, the reason, and, and I know this is personal, but I know this because I do this. The reason that we find ourselves from time to time praying or trying to pray our way out of situations we've behaved our way into is because we don't begin our day this way. We don't begin our prayers this way. We don't begin surrendered to our Father's will. And so we get our unsurrendered self into situations that we can't get ourselves out of. Situations, by the way, we could have avoided if we would have started with and continued in the posture of your will be done. Now, have you noticed that when we find ourselves in those situations that what's our prayer like? It's still about us, right? Help me, save me, rescue me. And listen, does God answer those prayers? I think he does. But here's the deal. Your heavenly father would love to help you avoid those kind of prayers by upfront surrendering to his will. Friends, this is why we pray. So as we start 21 days of prayer and fasting this year, what if you prayed a different way? What if you prayed the Jesus way? What if it was alone and undistracted and unscripted? And what if instead of rushing to you, what if you started with him? His agenda, his will, his kingdom. Look, surrender gets a bad rap, but what if surrender is exactly what you're missing? What if who you surrender to, in fact, is better than anything you could have ever hoped or even prayed for? So as we start 21 days of prayer, I wanna encourage you to get alone. And I want you to surrender your will and your kingdom to someone greater. So, does prayer work? This kind of prayer does. Because this kind of prayer always works on us and always works for us. So, Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen.